0: I'm excited to have Distinguished Professor of Anthropology and Current Professor Emeritus from the University of Nevada, Alan Simmons. Professor Simmons has done extensive work in his field all over North America, including excavation work in the American Southwest and even in my backyard in Southern Ontario. Professor Simmons has published extensively and has persuasively demonstrated that the island of Cyprus was occupied far earlier than previously believed, predating the traditional aceramic Neolithic period by 3,000 years. Here is my interview. I want to actually start off by asking um, about the Neolithic Revolution first and foremost, sure. Um, because I think n- that's not a common, <laughs> it's not a common uh, term that people okay. are, are going to be familiar with.
1: And so it's right. a so term archaeologist
0: are... would be familiar with. But uh, but yeah, out, outside of that
1: narrow range, it's it's probably not commonly known. So um,
0: what is exactly the
1: Neolithic okay. Revolution? Well, and a- actually, the term Neolithic is, is is pretty much a misnomer as well. But um, back when archaeology was being developed, um, you know, the early archaeologists had the uh, Paleolithic period, which is the really old materials, and then uh, the Neolithic, which simply means new, new stones. And... Um, The Neolithic Revolution actually, what was something that occurred in the Near East, as far as we know, it occurred first in the Near East around 10,000 years ago. And the main significance, the takeaway of Neolithic Revolution is, this marked the first time in human history for our entire couple million year existence that humans started to grow their own food Rather than hunt it, so humans have been hunters and gatherers. Uh, you know, everybody's heard that term. Um, but with the Neolithic, uh, they started um, producing their own food, and they also started living in permanent or semi-permanent villages, and that really changed the course of of to where we are even now. So it resulted, um, as I said, um, in, in the domestication of plants and animals, in the establishment of permanent villages, and then it sort of snowballed from out of there. Once you have people living in permanent villages and larger groups, you you get higher populations, and you get the good and the bad. You get diseases, um, but you also get inventions, etc. So so the Neolithic Revolution, the, the, the reason the term revolution is used is because it really was a revolution in in human history. And if it had not happened, we wouldn't be here talking now.
0: Presumably a lot of these diseases that you that you mentioned comes from the domestication of animals and, and close contact with those animals.
1: Uh, yeah, that's
0: one of the, the
1: – so there were lots of consequences of the Neolithic Revolution. There were many good consequences, but there were bad ones too. And the more we look into this, one of those consequences was probably an increased um, degree of disease. One, caused by transmission from animals to people. Uh, it's it's commonly believed, for example, that cattle, which which were domesticated – passed on tuberculosis to people, although there's some debate on that. Um, but also, um, not even involving the animals, just just think about all of a sudden you lived in a, as a hunter and gatherer in a small band of maybe 50 people or 25 people. Now you're living in a village that might have had 100 people or a couple hundred. Um, sanitation must have been uh, pretty primitive and... Um, so these villages, uh, you know, probably by our standards were were not very pleasant places in terms of sanitation
0: and health. <laughs> I vaguely recall reading about this this revolution, and please correct me if I'm wrong, the fact that now humans were eating grains and a lot of cereals now, uh, that in and uh, of itself had other consequences uh, on uh, teeth, on diet. And, Absolutely, you know, yeah. And, and it, it shortened lifespan while allowing uh, 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 the growth of populations. But even though those populations grew faster, life expectancy was actually counterintuitively cut shorter.
1: That is one debate that uh, that is not resolved. But certainly there is probably some truth to that. Now, now, of course, people have been eating grains all along, hunting and gathering. But we're talking about domesticated um, grains now where... You know, as a hunter and gatherer, you go after your food. As a Neolithic person, your food is there. It, it comes to you. So certainly that was one consequence of eating a lot more, uh, I don't want to say refined grains like we have today, but um, eating a lot more grains that were ground. There there was a lot of probably more tooth uh, and dental issues. So it it was a mixed bag in terms of, well, you knew where your food was coming from, but perhaps it was not as nutritious as a hunting and gathering diet. And, you know, we even see that today in advertisements for, for diets. Uh, you know, we eat too much refined food, etc. We need to be more like our ancestors. And, um, you know, even meat, even meat um, from non-domesticated animals tends to be leaner and has more protein than the meat we get from domesticated animals. So it's a very complicated process, and um, I don't mean to make it sound too grim. There's a a quote I use a lot from a book called The Archaeology of Syria, where they briefly describe the Neolithic as just a horrific, horrific scenario. And if if that were really true, you kind of wonder, well, why did it work then? So so you can overstate it. But there certainly were health consequences that were uh, certainly unanticipated.
0: Yeah, they, there was a, a shift from um, the hunter gatherers feast and famine lifestyle, where you didn't know where your next meal was coming from. But when you did, it was a variety. Uh, you had a lot of it. But then the the, the sedentary lifestyle, I mean, maybe we shouldn't call it sedentary, but then you're eating principally one type of food. And like you said, that's not as nutritious. And right. I can see where that that consequence might be. Yeah, that
1: that's that's true and and sedentary actually is, is a good term or at least semi-sedentary which is we'll talk about later which is why Cyprus is so interesting in this. But um, they weren't eating just one type of food, but the the early farmers and early Neolithic people had a, I'd say probably had a more restricted diet um, than hunters and gatherers. And depending what part of the world you're looking at It wasn't always feast or famine with hunters and gatherers, but, you know, you're dealing with simply smaller populations and more variety of food. And another thing to remember with the Neolithic Revolution, it wasn't an on-off switch. It it was a transition. So once plants and animals were domesticated, they still still hunted and gathered. Uh, So there was a mixture for quite a while until until the uh,
0: domestication became much more intense now a lot of your work uh had you originally in the american southwest yes uh, but sometime in the late 80s early 90s uh you flew out to cyprus uh, specifically to akrotiri on the southern peninsula of the island so um can you just tell me a little bit how how that first happened like how did these sites get your attention and how were they discovered well,
1: as in many things in archaeology, a lot of it was serendipity. So, um, as you note, know, I had done a lot of work um, in the Southwest and elsewhere in the states, and a lot of it focused on what we would call the Neolithic in North America, but they don't really use that term. But it's the same concept of you know domesticating plants, not so much animals. So that was the theme I was interested in, and I, I had done my dissertation at Southern Methodist University um, on small Neolithic sites in Israel, actually. And these were interesting because they were not villages. These were still essentially hunter-gatherer um, Neolithic people. So to address your question, though, I had been involved um, in excavations in Jordan uh, with a couple of colleagues, Gary Roloffson and uh, Zaydan Kafafi, at a, at a huge Neolithic settlement called Ain Ghazal, Spring of the Gazelles, and it's one of the largest Neolithic sites known. So, I was I was already working in the Middle East, uh, and then um, I think I uh, it's a little fuzzy. I think I might have visited Cyprus once, you know, just coming back from Jordan, and um, we were working at Ain Ghazal and had heard of the site on Cyprus that seemed to be possibly pre-Neolithic. And uh, that was important because at the time, Kirikatiya, the village of Kirikatiya, which started about 7,000 BC, that was the oldest archaeology on Cyprus. It was Neolithic, but it was a little bit um, younger than on the mainland, if that makes sense. So in any case, I heard about the site through a mutual acquaintance, and... um, flew over to Cyprus just, just to look at it. And at the time, um, the director of Kerry, which which is instrumental in all of this work, Kerry uh, being the Cyprus American Archaeological Research Institute, um, the director, Stuart Swinney, um, who I'd never met before, but we immediately hit it off, and he said, well, this is an interesting site if you'd like to take a look at it. The problem with it, with it as you know in much of the broader Middle East is there's always politics and the site Akrotiri Etokremnos um, Eagle Cliff or Vulture Cliff I guess um, is on a British Air Force Base um, RAF Akrotiri so access was not really easy but in any case Swinney arranged for a visit and we went down and looked at the site and initially I wasn't too impressed um It was a very steep decline, halfway down a cliff.
0: I'm not sure I could even get there today. (laughs) I've seen pictures, and it does look really inaccessible.
1: Yeah, it's it's something uh, OSHA or the Canadian equivalent of OSHA would not be happy with people working on. But um, what it was was a a, a collapsed rock shelter. Okay, not a cave, but a shelter. um, The front part of which had fallen in, and what had intrigued intrigued Swinney about it, who, who's really a Bronze Age archaeologist, but you know, he, he has a white envelope of interest, was the fact that there were some pygmy hippopotamus bones on the surface of the site uh, with some chipstone artifacts. And the reason that that was important was because these, these very unique island adapted animals there were pygmy hippos and and pygmy or dwarf elephants known on the island but they had never never been associated with humans and they were assumed to have been extinct way before humans arrived so i thought well that's kind of interesting and it fits into the broader picture of globally of humans in pleistocene extinctions um, as you might know a lot of animal like in north america went extinct Twelve thousand years ago, or so, about the time humans were thought to have arrived. So this was a broad issue, and I thought, well, why you know, Cyprus seems like a very pleasant place to work, which of course it turned out to be. Um, so we we got permission, we visited the site, um, and uh, the politics were interesting because at the time there were not any Cypriot archaeologists really interested in the early archaeology of the island, very few. Now, that's changed. There's a new generation of young Cypriots, um, uh, uh, many of whom I've had the pleasure of working with, who, who are into prehistory now, early prehistory. But at the time, there wasn't much interest, and since this was on a British base, The ideal people to investigate it would have been British archaeologists who who were working on the island, but they weren't really interested. Um, To make it even more convoluted, uh, there was an Israeli archaeologist who I believe had visited the site, and he was interested in excavating it. But I don't think he was going to get a permit from the British. Uh, probably because of, you know, the politics. So here's this American, you know, somewhat neutral. And <laughs> yeah. they said, well, yeah, why don't you come take a look at it? So to make a long story short, we, we thought it would be worth um, testing uh, just what you do in archaeology. You just do some test excavations to see if it's even real. And so after one of our seasons in Aing-Gazal, uh I guess this is back in, wow, 1988 now or... 87, something like that. Um, a small group of us went over to um, uh, uh One of the people, Deborah Shevsky, had, um, you know, been working with us in Jordan. And um, she's a lithics expert. And we went over to conduct some test excavations just for, I think it was maybe 10 days or so. And Stuart Swinney um, actually was involved with it as well. And much to our surprise, once we started the test excavations... Um, it, it appeared that, indeed, this was an archaeological site, because that was in question. Um, the artifacts could have simply washed in from above the cliff, but they seemed to be intact, and they seemed to be associated with the very, very well-preserved and abundant hippo remains. So um, that's kind of the start of Akrotiri, and um in a way, we we had we had a lot of funding problems initially because when we first wanted to go over, nobody would give us money because they said you don't know if it's an archaeological site. We don't want to waste money. Um, then once we demonstrated it was an archaeological site, some funding agencies said, "Well, now you've shown it's a site, so you don't need the funding." And you know that's just the way archaeology works. But ultimately, we were able to get some fairly substantial funding from. Agencies like National Geographic, uh, National Science Foundation, and, oh gosh, National Endowment for Humanities, and some private funds. So we, we did uh, three seasons of excavations at the site, um, and then another season of survey around it, and basically excavated most of the site and found huge, huge numbers, uh, over 500 uh, pygmy hippos which, which um, was over 200,000 bones of these animals. And um, we published that, I think, in 1999 in a book. Um, and what was really important about Akroteri then, I, I, I don't want to go into too much detail, but were two, two points to take away. We had over 70 radiocarbon dates, so it's very well dated, to about 10,000 B.C., So that's 3,000 years earlier than Chiricatia, so that was point one. The chronology showed people were there before the Neolithic, and two, we had the association um, of us that was very convincing of these extinct animals with humans, which led us to conclude that humans were one component in the extinction of these animals, and that was the controversial um, aspect of the site. And 30 years later, it still remains controversial. Um, we just saw an article that was published um, by some uh, actually Cypriot and Greek paleontologists who, who had given permission to look at the bones. And they were looking at just the bones and age profiles of the hippos. And they concluded that humans were not involved. So, you know, it's kind of gratifying in a way that 30 years later, people are still talking about the site. But it certainly established... Um,
0: my foothold in Cyprus. You mentioned that it was controversial and it surprises me that it is still controversial because again there was a paper that you published in 2005 where you address I think some of the criticisms uh specifically you you say that uh one of the criticisms was the absence of cut marks on the bones. Right. Butchery marks, yeah. Butchery marks which you know your 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 refutation of that was I, I thought very convincing. Is there any way you can speak to that? Because uh, if anyone considers, you know, butchering an animal, they would sure. expect that there would be cut marks. And in this case, there weren't any. So what was right. your uh, rebuttal to that?
1: Sure, sure. And that that remained, even in this recent article, I just mentioned that they, they came back to that again. And um, we, we had published, you mentioned a 2005 article on I think the most thorough thing we published, um, the geoarchaeologist that worked with me on the site, Rolf Mandel, University of Kansas, uh, he and I published in 2016, I think, the most detailed rebuttal where we had the new carbon dates and we also had a big section on the cut marks. So basically our argument is cut marks in general in archeological assemblages are, are not common. You do see them, but they're not common. And um, our argument was, well, part of it depends how you would cook the animal and how you would process it. And we, we believe that an animal as chubby as a hippo, as a pygmy hippo, um, would probably have a fair amount of fat on it. And if it was roasted, think of a luau, a pig type thing, um, you might not get cut marks at all. So you know, it's, it's something you could argue back and forth. And and in in all fairness, the person who originally looked at a, a large sample of the assemblage, Sandy Olson, um, she's the one that uh, wrote a, a part a, a section in our book that said she did not believe there were cut marks and that she did not think it was cultural. And that that in itself was fun because um, people assume Sandy and I are enemies now. And we're not, we're friends, and I, I included her uh, section in the book, but I footnoted the hell out of it, um, you know, uh, talking about cut marks and rebutting everything. So, you know, archaeologists are very conservative, um, but we, we we have absolutely no problem with the lack of cut marks. Um, that that there's so many variables in that. And in Cyprus also, um, people really had not until recently looked at at cut marks. There, there's a young Cypriot uh, archaeologist now um, who did his PhD um, just a few years ago in Sheffield, I believe, um, Angelos Hadjikoumis, who, who worked with us at the Neolithic site that we might get to. And you know, he might be a little skeptical on cut marks too, but he's he's actually finding cut marks on Neolithic um, materials now. So um, so we're just not we're just not too concerned about. The lack of cut marks.
0: Uh, I was going to ask. Uh, so, what was then the persuasive evidence of inhabitation? I mean, uh, as far as I understand, there weren't any human remains found, but uh, were there evidence of hearths? Um, oh, yeah. yeah.
1: Okay. So, 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 in, in very um, uh, kind of simple terms, there are two major layers of material at Acquarius Stratum Two and Four. And stratum 2, nobody argues, is that it's not cultural. We, we have hearths in there. Um, we have the majority of the chipstone artifacts. There are some beads. There are some shell beads. Then there's a stratum 3, which is a sterile layer, not very thick, but a sterile layer. And then beneath that is stratum 4, which contains the majority of the bone. Now... Geoarchaeology is really important in sites like this, and our geolog- our geoarchaeologist, uh, Rolf Mandel, it was able to show that the difference between stratum 2 and stratum 4, time-wise, was almost nothing. In fact, the radiocarbon dates, you know, show us a very short separation, and Although the majority of bones are in stratum four, we also had about 10 or 12 percent of the chipstone. A lot of the bones in stratum four are burned, and you have to explain how they got burned. And conversely, in stratum two, which has most of the artifacts, we also had several thousand pieces of um, hippo. Now, critics have said, well, that's because people dug through into the bottom layer, stratum four, and just brought up some bones accidentally. And we know that's not true because the stratigraphy at Akrotiri is textbook. There is absolutely no evidence of people digging pits from the upper layer into the lower layer. And people have argued that perhaps the hearths in level two burned the bone beneath it because they were so hot and we've shown that's, that's impossible as well because the burn bone in, in level four is, is throughout, not just under hearths. And we have a couple features, um, hearth-like features, in level four as well. So, so our um, agitation sometimes with the critics of the sites is they haven't really read in detail the very detailed information that we've published on the site. Initially, our radiocarbon dates on the bone were kind of all over the place, and and radiocarbon dating the best dates you get are from actual charcoal. Okay, mm-hmm. so those are the ones that gave us our 12,000 BC or um, uh, 12,000 years ago, 10,000 BC um, dates, and the the bone dates. Some of them were a were recent, like three, four thousand years ago, and then um, a few of them fit within the charcoal dates so that was always an issue but there are problems with dating bone in any case so one of our chief antagonists uh was a group of french archaeologists but they agreed to date oh i think 35 more hippo bone um samples to to try to get a precise chronology for the hippos and they they used a very sophisticated um you know, procedure, state-of-the-art radiocarbon dating and didn't charge us anything for it. And what that showed was that the hippo bones were absolutely contemporary with um, the the charcoal dates. So, um, you know, to us, that just showed that they were contemporary. Now, to be honest, in the article that the French published, they still didn't want to believe it, so they, they had done some other... Um, detailed analysis that convinced them that the hippos were maybe six or 700 years older and had been still dug up by later people, uh, people. And of course we, we dismissed that as well. It just, you know, they just refused to give up their contention that, that there was no cultural association. So,
0: so in archeology,
1: span you know, you, you, you piece together, it's all circumstantial evidence. Um, uh, you piece together multiple lines of evidence, and that's what we did. Uh, we had the dates, we had the artifacts, um, we had the features. Um, and and our, our ultimate conclusion that it, it, it just seems almost too much of a coincidence if the very first people in Cyprus happened to build their site right on top of some of the last hippos that died naturally. I mean mm-hmm. what are the odds of that for mm-hmm. at this very small point on the landscape so uh so like I say we you know we still maintain this if i I've always argued that if the site had been on the mainland and it was sheep instead of hippos, nobody would have questioned the cultural association so that that was kind of
0: the tale of Akrotiri, in a in a sense was this um Was this an example of occupation or colonization? Ah, good point. What's the difference?
1: Okay, the well, we're not archaeologists, you know, are kind of a disparate lot. Um, But colonization implies that you're there and you've colonized a place. You're living there permanently. So this was not we we think a colonization, but we think it was a visitation by people from the mainland. Um, who stayed for an unspecified amount of time but actually did not colonize the island at the time. And, and just to put it in time perspective, um, 12,000 years ago is, is right before the Neolithic Revolution, and so it's a term we call, it, <coughs> excuse me, uh, epipaleolithic. So right before the Neolithic. So these people at Akrotiri were Epipaleolithic people. Why did they come to Cyprus? Well, who knows, but people people are curious. And we now know that pre-Neolithic people were, were taken to the sea far earlier than we had thought. And, and another point, um, I, I think you had asked this originally in one of your questions, um, was 12,000 years ago in the, in the Near East and Cyprus, The environment was, in a sense, similar to today's, but it was the end of the Pleistocene and the beginning of the period we're in now, which is known as the Holocene. And right around this time, there was a a climatic event called the Younger Dryas, which was a very cold and dry period. So it would have put a lot of stress on people and animals. And part of our argument was if this Younger Dryas hit Cyprus, it could have stressed out the hippo populations already and humans could have just been the straw that you know broke the hippo's back when they when they initially arrived
0: you do say something here that uh, that caught my attention you know i know this is a you know you're hypothesizing here sure um you say my feeling is that these migrants were disenchanted mainlanders who chose not I didn't to participate said that once yes uh huh yeah, and the tumultuous changes that were occurring in the mainland. So, are you referring to farming? Like, are you guessing that that's one of the reasons why they they left? Yeah,
1: yeah. In, in a sense, yes. And this 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 would refer now not so much to Akroteri, the to paleolithic people, but it would uh, refer to the Neolithic people that we now know were as early as they were on the mainland. And, and actually, I mean, that's that's not just uh, an original idea of mine. Um years ago, um Abraham Ronan, uh, uh Israeli archaeologist, I believe he was the one that also wanted to excavate at Akrotiri. um, he he had written an interesting article about the first Neolithic people in Cyprus being um kind of conservative religious people who who wanted to get away from what was going on on the mainland. And, um, you know, I think there might be some, some truth to that. Although, I, you know, I, I, I think you're going too far to say you're concerned. He, he compared them to modern uh, Mennonites, I think. <laughs> okay. And, uh, you know, okay, that seems to be pushing it a bit. but yeah. um, But, you know, people like to explore. And as you know, I mean, Cyprus is not that far away. But to get there, you needed to have seaworthy craft.
0: Which I find it's I find really difficult to wrap my head around um, how these early people were were fashioning and loading up these uh, these crops with animals too at, at later points and, obviously yeah
1: yeah it's it's it it is it is pretty amazing but you know I think we don't give them enough credit and and initially you know I was a skeptic as well I mean I I was not a big believer in human involvement in extinction uh, on, on like North America, but you look at the evidence and, you know, where it takes you. And, you know, now we know that people were able to make some pretty seaworthy, um, vessels and, and it's not just making, it's not just the technology, but it's the kind of the cognition of knowing how to navigate, right? Where are you going? Why are you going there? And, um, I, I got because of Akrotiri and the Neolithic material, I got really interested in, in that. And, um, as you know, I did a book in um, with one of my uh, PhD students um, in 2014, I think, about prehistoric sailors, and um, it focused on the Mediterranean, but kind of looked globally. And now now we know that pre-Neolithic people were probably taken to the sea far more
0: frequently than we'd originally thought. I, I don't want to jump ahead to your work in Ice Yorkies. We'll, we'll, we'll yeah. get to that in, in a second. Okay. But... I do believe, I do remember reading that, um, you know, there was a back and forth um, going on between Neolithic settlements in the mainland. Um, you know, there's evidence of trade. I think there's um, obsidian, which is not native to Cyprus, which shows that. Exactly. There's evidence of, yes. Was this a linear trajectory for these uh, early peoples and uh, Akrotiri settlements, or do you think it was a back and forth as well? ah that's a great question it's really hard to
1: answer so the the initial settlement and and now we might come back to this later now now that people have started to look for these early sites they're actually finding some you know um, uh, non-neolithic sites are archaeologically not very visible right because you don't have a village you've just got settlement a camp so these initial people at akrotiri we do not have evidence for trade there. We don't have. We did not have any um, exotic materials. It was all from Cyprus. So there was no obsidian. However, in the Neolithic, which you know um, I, I said was three thousand years later, but now we know it was only five hundred years later because there's a lot more Neolithic sites that have been discovered in Cyprus. Early ones, we do have obsidian. So yes, we do know that there was trade with the mainland starting in the early Neolithic uh with obsidian being a major commodity but then the question you've got to ask and we're we're grappling with that is what did they get in exchange did was there something in Cyprus that went back to the mainland and we don't have very good evidence for that at all there there's there I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit but there's one class of artifacts that you see early in Cyprus and then you see later on the mainland very similar artifacts. And these are sort of incised cobbles, about the size of a fist. And you have those at Kirikatiya and uh, other Neolithic sites in Cyprus. And then you see very similar artifacts later on on the mainland during what we call the Pottery Neolithic. Obviously, they had pottery then. But it's sort of an indirect lineage. So, so yeah, we do not know what they exchanged.
0: And we you can know? definitely, we know it's definitely not Halloumi or Comandaria. That's for Yeah. Sure.
1: <laughs> yeah. But it might've been dried hippo. I mean, who knows, but um you know, we don't have any evidence for that.
0: This, this quite you mentioned the extinction of uh megafauna. And I think a lot of people are familiar with when we say megafauna, giant sloths and. Yeah. Mastodons. And, uh, mastodons. And... Right. And I did mention, I mentioned this to my wife um about these are, pygmy dwarf elephants dwarf hippopotamuses. yeah they're they're mini megafauna yeah mini megafauna um now how did these megafauna mini megafauna make it to cyprus and did did the dwarfism happen on the island or did that happen i mean i I think it is typical for dwarfism to happen on islands yes but um is that what happened and how, Uh, how did they get there
1: well, uh, that, that's a whole other li- uh, line of inquiry, but, but it's been studied uh, a fair amount. And um, one, one of the people in Cyprus and uh, Mediterranean Islands um, who studied this a lot was uh, a paleontologist, a Dutch paleontologist, Paul Sundar, who passed away a few years ago. But um, so the idea is, okay, we're talking Pleistocene, last two million years, is that before people were around on the islands, these animals, um, for some reason, as full-sized hippos and full-sized elephants, swam or drifted to islands like Crete and Cyprus and Malta. Um, they they occur on several of the islands, and and I think uh, Sandar he wrote an interesting article called the Sweepstakes Theory of island colonization or so, something like that. And um, the idea was that, per, you know, perhaps these animals were stressed on the mainland. They didn't have enough food. We, we don't know, but they, they are excellent swimmers. And so the idea is that they swam kind of in a one-way uh, route and ended up on islands like Cyprus and Crete. Now, to answer your question, once there... There were not a lot of resources on these islands. So if you're a large animal, well, what, what is largeness? Uh it means you got to eat a lot. And also largeness is protection against predators. So on islands like Cyprus, there were no predators, and there might not have been that much food. And those two um variables account for for this dwarf as dwarfism process. And that's that's been shown on, on many islands so um so the idea is that they became diminutive relatively quickly in evolutionary terms i mean that was i'm sure several thousand years now the question you might ask if that's the case have we found any intermediate sizes of of the hippos or the elephants in cyprus or elsewhere and um not really, not really. There, there are like 35, 40 paleontological sites in Cyprus with no humans that have hippos and uh, elephants on them. Um, and there's not, they're, they're all pretty much the same size. So this might have been a pretty quick um, adaptation to an island. And, and again, the person, like I said, uh, was Paul Sondar who'd spent a lot of time on that but i should also mention the person who studied our our hippo bones david reese um he's he's written a lot on this entire process as
0: well you you mentioned though that um the the humans there they were the ones that broke the camel's back right i mean they they these animals didn't adopt to the climate changes that were happening at the time.
1: They were already stressed out. And and you have to realize too, since there were no predators on the Island, they probably were pretty naive in terms of like the dodo. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, here's these two legged creatures. Gee, Um, they they probably would have been pretty easy to hunt. You know, there were no arrowheads or anything, but they, they they might've clubbed them or, you know, ran them over the cliff at Akrotiri and, pulled them back up. Uh, we don't know the specifics on that, but, but yeah, they would have been just primed for, for the ultimate predator, for humans.
0: Let's fast forward a little bit here okay. uh, to your work at Ice Yorkis, because here now we're, we're, we're jumping into the Neolithic yeah. uh, period. Ice Yorkis is, is different from Hirokitia in that oh, yeah. this is inland, and that's very unusual for these settlements. So, yeah, can you talk to us about sure. the significance of it? Let me uh, segue, um, uh, fast forward a little bit, as you say. So the
1: the the seasons at Akrotiri, at Eterkremnos, um, convinced me, wow, Cyprus is a great place to work. Um, so I was looking for another site and um, still working in Jordan at, at the same time at a different Neolithic village uh, called Guer. Um but what we, what we found um, was a site that had been discovered by David Rupp and his team years ago in Western Cyprus um, that they had just recorded as a Neolithic site, but they didn't do anything. And so with his blessings, um, the, the, there's another site before Ias that I'll just mention briefly. It's uh, called Calethria Ortos. Um, so that was a site we thought was interesting. It was Neolithic. It was like Kirikatea in terms of time frame. So we, we did a couple seasons of excavation at Ortos and um, still going back and forth between Jordan. But Ortos um, it was an interesting site because erosion or whatever is very rich site, but there was no architecture to it. It had taken it away. So... Although it was rich, um, you know, it was, was kind of hard to figure out what it was in terms of a settlement. It was kind of similar to Kirakatia, not size wise. Kirikatia is huge. Kirakatia is an enormous site. Ortos is much smaller. But um, so we did what we could there. And then I decided, well, OK, let's see if we can, you know, find anything else that might be in better shape. And that's where Ias comes in. Now, in this intervening time period, you know, from the uh, um, mid-90s or so, other people, of course, were excavating uh, at sites as well, and what was becoming apparent was that there was an earlier Neolithic component to Cyprus. Remember, we said Churyctea had been the first well-documented Neolithic um, site, and Ortos was contemporary with Kiricadia, no problem. Ias um, Yorkrcus had also been found by, by David Rupp. Um, he's probably uh, not happy with me poaching on his sites, but, but <laughs> you know, they, they weren't doing anything with him and I certainly no. you know had consulted with him. And I uh, Yorkcus had been recorded as a small site that was unique because it was in the uplands. As you pointed out, almost all the other sites, including Ortos, are within a few kilometers of the coast. Um, and it seemed to be Kirikatean culture. And so we thought, well, let's, let's see if we can get some funds and see what's going on at I.S. Yorkas. And again, just like Akrotiri, we initially did a, a um, very short 10-day season and there was a, another Neolithic site nearby Uh, at at the village at Canaview, So we tested both of them, and um, that's kind of what opened the door to I.S. Yorkis. The Canaview site didn't turn out to have much, but I.S. Yorchus, once we started um, excavations, um, again, I seem to be either lucky or unlucky in getting these unusual out-of-the-envelope sites. So what was unusual about I.S. Yorchus is it had some cattle bone, associated now that's important because cows had never been documented in the neolithic of cyprus they didn't and not
0: not until the bronze age if i right yeah exactly
1: so again that could be fortuitous you know some cow bones could have you know washed down from a site or something but we dated them directly and they came back neolithic and What also was important is the the radiocarbon dates from Raya Shorkas were earlier than Kirikatiya. So, again, that was kind of an unusual situation. But now, other people um, who have been excavating, uh, uh, French groups, British groups, um, have documented Neolithic sites that are now what we call PPNB, Pre-Pottery Neolithic B, And what's earlier, PPNA, Pre-Pottery Neolithic A, um, on Cyprus, there's probably a handful of these sites now that are a couple thousand years older than Kirikatiya. So you see the gap now between the hippos and the Neolithic has been reduced to less than a thousand years. So I.S. Yerkes was, okay, well, this is interesting. And it seemed like it was a small site, so we thought we can do this in a couple years and well all i can say is 15 20 years later uh we finally finished and we're writing the monograph now and i'm i'm still struggling with it <laughs> uh so we we had conducted some very very substantial um excavations at is Yorkus certainly we have not excavated the entire site but um we've we've been able to uh you know get a pretty good idea about it and and so yeah it's it's interesting because it's upland it's not a village in the proper sense it was probably not occupied year round it's too cold but it was a small hamlet we have some really interesting architecture we have some interesting um, detailed studies suggesting these people were using uh, medicinal plants um and it just turned out to be a fantastic site that we're kind of putting the final touches on the publication
0: right now and if i'm not mistaken this is that site has the earliest documented human burial on the island it has one
1: of them there there's a couple earlier burials at at some other sites um and our our burial is really interesting because we only have two Separate burials, two human remains. One is of an infant, which was in a little scooped-out pit within a bigger pit. Uh, it was a newborn, very poor shape. And then the one you're you're referring to was was a more proper burial, but still in pretty bad shape, of a, a flexed individual that was buried in a pit uh, in the northern part of the site, and and that. Is York states to about 7,800 um, BC, so it's amongst the earliest. But I, I think there are a couple early burials um, at at a few of the other sites as well. And, and what 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 has happened with this documenting this, the the PPNB and the PPNA? As earlier than Kirikatiya, that's really changed the entire configuration of how people look at Cyprus now. Because it used to be thought with Kirikatiya, major site, very important, but kind of distinctive from the mainland. Um, You know, the artifacts were different and people had been very uncharitable in describing Kirikatiya as sort of a a backwater, um, which is not the case. But Basically, the Neolithic in Cyprus was almost considered a footnote to the broader Near East because it was later. You know, some Neolithic people came over and established Kirikatiya, you know, after the Neolithic Revolution was in full scale on the mainland. Well, we know it's not that simple now. We know now that very early Neolithic people, these PPNA people, who did not have domestic plants and animals yet, were in Cyprus and... And so the Neolithic in Cyprus, the whole range of the Neolithic, is as early as it is on the mainland. And that certainly implies that these people were going back and forth all the time. It wasn't like a one-time excursion. And this is where we can say that Cyprus was actually colonized rather than just visited,
0: probably during the Cipro-PPNB period. This obviously refers back to what you were... The narrative you were disrupting about uh, that these these original settlers they f- they came from the mainland and imported a complete and I think you you say a complete and developed Neolithic package and right. that's that's not the case that this ev- the evidence that you found is that they were a part of this development this revolution
1: right well yeah that that's true now Cyprus does not have the indigenous plants and animals that were domesticated. So these Neolithic people had to bring those over on their boats. And um, so in that sense, that was part of a Neolithic package that was imported because there there were no goats or sheep or pigs that were native to Cyprus, and the hippos were already gone. But in any event, what we know is they imported these domesticates but what's really, really interesting is, is we're seeing, and, and this is real clear at I.S. Yorcus, is that these people, we have, we have amongst, I.S. Yorcus for a small site, relatively small, has just enormous amounts of chipstone and artifacts and faunal remains. Um, I mean, we only sampled 20% of the materials, and, and we have hundreds of thousands of pieces. So it was a very dense site. And they had, at Ayasharchus, the focus was on deer. Now, how did the fallow deer get there? We don't know. There's not much paleontological evidence that it was native to Cyprus. Did, you know, the people bring them over as wild animals to hunt? We we just don't know that. Um, or, you know, did they swim over like the hippos did? But at Ayasharchus, in any case, about 50% of the um, fauna is wild deer, so they were hunting, even though they were Neolithic. But what's interesting, we've done some um, um, genetic work, uh, some isotope work, and some of the other animals, too, and it looks like that even the sheep and goats and pigs might have been, a, a, I don't want to use the word feral, but kind of feral because it looks like they were not, if they were only seasonally at this village, I.S. Yorkas or settlement, I shouldn't say village, small settlement. Um, We have five or six structures there. Uh, They went, the people went back to the coastal area during the winter, um, but they didn't, they left their animals up there. And I guess uh, shepherds will still do that today in in various parts of Cyprus or the rest of the world. So the animals just kind of hung around, and then they came back and were were exploited when the people returned. So we're seeing that this this Neolithic revolution is a sliding scale. These people were certainly still hunting and probably gathering as well as having domestic resources. And although we've got some of the world's earliest domestic plants directly dated at Iaxarchus, um... It seems that the plants were almost a supplement, and we don't think they were growing at the site. They were probably brought in from other settlements, maybe near the lowlands, and and traded. Um, I mean, one argument we're making is, uh, you know, there's a lot of ethnographic evidence from medieval times in Cyprus that people from mountain villages would get together and exchange, you know, information and gossip, and and we think Is Yorkus might have functioned in sort of a similar way. We we have a fair amount of imported obsidian at the site. We have some really interesting ground stone that's pretty elaborate. Um, we have a lot of jewelry, so it was it was small, but it was a fairly sophisticated um, little place. And then we've been doing um, uh, residue studies on some of the ground implements that you know think of a. Um, uh, a mono and a matati, you know, what you grain, uh, grind grains on. Um, and we found evidence of not only foodstuffs, but also condiments like wild mustard and um, a plant that belongs in the um, carnation family, which is known worldwide for medicinal purposes and is even used in cancer research today. And so these people were, were grinding this stuff up, you know, 9,000 years ago at IS Yorkus, uh, probably for medicinal uses, you know, it was, it was probably a pretty hard life. They were probably sore a lot. So, um, so it's just really interesting what we've gotten out of the site. And then the cattle, you know, one of the main reasons we, we got funds to excavate at the site um, were about two or 3% of the fauna. So not a large percentage, but They had cattle either for beast of burden, if they were going back and forth to the mainland. Um, And then when they died, they'd probably eat them. Uh, So there's a lot of stuff going on at this little Trudeau settlement. And and part of it might've been, and this is uh, a bit more speculative, but uh, my, my wife Renee has been working with these residue studies and she's also analyzed the ground stone. We have a lot of axes at the site. And it might be that the timber, the trees up in the Trudeau's, were were better quality than what you get towards the towards the coast. And you know, if you've got boats that are coming and going, you've got a them. And so maybe they were doing some timbering up, you know, up up north, up in the Trudeau's. And taking floating some of those logs down to the coast to refurbish boats. Now, that's that's getting speculative, but um, there's just a lot of information that's that's um. Uh, been derived out of uh, out of Ayish,
0: Now the the obsidian that you mentioned a couple times. Now this this obsidian came mostly from Asia Minor, just north of the island. If, and you know correct me yeah, if I'm wrong. Yeah, it,
1: it, uh, we've sourced um, almost all of the obsidian. In fact, this, one of the uh, young uh, Cypriot um, or prehistorians I'd mentioned earlier has studied a lot of the um, obsidian, and it's all sourced to kind of central Anatolia.
0: Are can we? confidently assume that that's where the majority of these Neolithic settlers came from?
1: Where I think they came from, I think they came from all over the Middle East. I don't think there's one source. I think they came from Anatolia. I think they came over from the Levantine area. Um, it, it, was, it was sort of a mass... Um, migration of of some, some people. I don't think there's one source that they came from, but we certainly can say that the obsidian came from Anatolia.
0: I want to circle back to one last thing with the cattle. Now might be a shot in the dark here. Now, was there any evidence or is there anyone who's uh, even speculated at the possibility that the cattle represented some sort of religious uh, Ah. aspect
1: yeah, really, really good question. We, we've written about that a little bit, um, as have other people. So, on the mainland, during the Neolithic, there is a lot of evidence that cattle actually had some religious evidence. Probably the best example of that's from Çatalhöyük in, uh, in Turkey, um, but also in, in other sites. So, for whatever reason, people, I mean, I think they still ate them, but... Cattle had some sort of religious significance on the mainland. Was that the same when they brought them over to Cyprus? Um, it's possible. We, You know, the question is why they disappear, right, um, and not reappear until the Bronze Age? And and I think part of that answer might be um, ecological, that, you know, cattle require a lot of uh, t- attention and you're on a small island, uh, maybe they... they the uh, effort to keep them wasn't worth it, but I think you're, you're to something when maybe they initially brought a few cows over because of religious or ritual significance so that they'd still feel a link with their homeland from, you know, from, uh, Lebanon or Israel or Turkey or Syria or wherever. And then essentially the cattle just became too expensive to keep. Um, so, again, it's all in the realm of speculation. But certainly on the mainland, you know, we, we find uh, several sites that, that had uh, a
0: special place for, for cows. What now? What sort of uh, new and interesting things are, are happening in your field of research?
1: Well, like I say, we're trying to get the monograph done on I.S. Yorkus, so that's progressing well. In the meantime, um, other people are, you know, looking at at. These early sites, not just on the coast, but elsewhere, and there's a fair amount of work going on. Um, we had um, we had started right when COVID hit um, with a couple of uh, colleagues um, of mine. Uh, in, uh, ironically, uh, four of us, all all with our uh, with advanced degrees from University of Toronto. <laughs> um, uh, Started a survey project um, looking for early Epipaleolithic sites again, and they were kind enough to uh, invite me along. So we had um, done some survey, found some very promising sites that were, were were similar to Akrotiri in many ways in terms of their location.
0: Sorry, uh, sorry. So there's a possibility there's more than one oh, Akrotiri site. Yeah, there
1: has there has to be, and of course, of course, you know, sea levels have, have risen and, and lowered. So some of these sites might be underwater. Um, and, um, we had hoped to go back and test some of these sites, but then COVID hit and everything shut down. So that's certainly something, um, that, that is, a you know, some potential for future work. And then, um, some of the younger Cypriots now are, are, are into, uh, these early sites as well. Um, Uh, One woman has completed a uh, survey up near the Akamas Peninsula in western Cyprus and thinks they have some early sites. So I'd say now that once people know what to look for, um, there are some early sites on the island. Um, Now, the big question still, and I'm always a skeptic, I need data, you know. I don't have much problem with Epipaleolithic sites, those ones right before the Neolithic, because we know they were there at Akrotiri. Some people are still claiming that we have much earlier sites like Lower Paleolithic or Middle Paleolithic, which would imply non-homo sapiens. I'm not convinced of that yet. Could be. There's good evidence for that on Crete, but you know you need more than just a few artifacts.
0: <laughs> yeah, you actually. Uh, hypo- I don't know. I think maybe it was just a throwaway comment. Um, you said the possibility of pre-homo sapiens seafaring ability in Crete from yeah. 130,000 years ago. That that took my that got my attention.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, that's. I was initially pretty skeptical of that, but I, I think that's been pretty well documented. Now we we talked about that in the uh, prehistoric sailors book. Um, but that was work done mainly by uh, Tom Strausser and Kurt Runnels. And I, I, I was lucky enough to visit some of those sites with, with Tom, who, who ironically had worked at uh, Akrotiri uh, years before as a student. And, um, you know, the thing, if you want to show an archaeological presence anywhere, is you need more than one artifact or one site and what they have on, on Crete, they have they have hundreds of artifacts, and they've got several different localities, and they're stratified. Um, they're hard to date, because that's beyond the range of radiocarbon dating. And, you know, it'd be great to find human remains, but that's rare. But I, I think they make a pretty compelling argument that they had, you know, what were humans 180,000 years ago? Could have been Neanderthals, um, or could have been early modern humans, so... So we don't have that in Cyprus yet. There had been some claims in Western Cy- Cyprus again years ago for Middle Paleolithic sites, but that that has not at all been verified. But it's kind of exciting now because people are looking for this stuff, which they hadn't been before. And as you know, I mean, islands like Cyprus and, and most of the Mediterranean islands have such wonderful archaeology from classical antiquity that... You know, for a long time, archaeologists just were not looking for the kind of boring-looking Paleolithic or Epipaleolithic sites that characterize people before the Neolithic. So that's that's really changed a lot. And I, I'd say in Cyprus, you know, remains on the forefront of uh, of this research. And certainly, none of the other islands has a Neolithic as early or as complex as as Cyprus does.
0: And Presumably that that's um just a matter of where Cyprus is located in uh, the yeah. southeastern Mediterranean. It's just yeah, a natural. So it's crossroads,
1: I mean it you know, still is now, right? And um once you have the technology, it probably wasn't that hard to get there. I mean, you could probably make that trip what the distance would have been what fifty, sixty kilometers or so. You probably could have done that in a couple of days. Um Although I'd be, I'd be leery of getting on some little, you know, Neolithic boat trying to bring a bunch of animals over, but I guess that's what they did.
0: Alan, um, thank you so much for your time. Sorry, uh, when are you headed down there next? Well, I uh,
1: ironically, since I've uh, uh, quote unquote retired from, from the university, I've, I've been busier than ever. I'm just not getting paid for it. But um, I had a uh, Fulbright um, award um,
0: for oh, four months.
1: Yeah, and I, I used the first two um, last April, right in the height of COVID. I was able to get in, and um, we're trying to go back. I don't think I'll be able to use the other two months, but we're trying to go back in April um, of this year to finish it up. And what we want to do is get some more of those residue um, samples from other sites so we can compare them with IS Yorkus. So we're we're hoping to, to be over there probably in um you know mid April, mid May.
0: Uh anyway, thank you so much. Okay. Well Andreas, that's great. I appreciate it. It was fun. Yeah, thank you. Take care.